I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, But in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Ah, dieting. It's something you have to do when you hit middle age. I'm in my 40s, deep in my 40s, And uh, getting fat is something that happens over a weekend. Uh, I used to run for about an hour every day as a way of keeping my pear shape down to a kind of a minimal bloat. And um, my knee gave out one time when I decided to go run outdoors instead of on a treadmill. And so now uh, I have to walk. And I've taken up the art of walking. Walking an hour and a half to two hours a day. Uh, I joined a gym because of the winter time. Because over this winter, uh, the pear has gotten so big that it's less of a pear, more of like a giant potato with little toothpicks sticking out the bottom for arms and legs. So, joined up, started doing the treadmill yesterday, walking, ran for about five minutes, walked for about 15 minutes, ran for about five, that kind of thing. Trying to burn off those calories, and uh, my feet hurt, even though I got brand new running shoes. So then today... I get on the treadmill, and I walk for about 10 minutes, and then I start to run for 5 minutes, and then some sort of muscle or something got pulled in one of my feet. And and that was terrible. But even though no one's paying attention to you in the gym, I'm still convinced people are watching me. So I had to try and play it off, like, oh, it's not a big deal. And I started walking again and kind of limping a little bit, but trying to downplay the limp. Uh, and the rest of the night, I've just been crippling around. I got together with a friend of mine. We went out to get something to eat and chat and stuff and uh, had to walk up and down a flight of stairs for the parking ramp. And uh, yeah, it's horrible. So tomorrow, I don't think I get to do any exercise. Then what do I do? How do I burn calories if I can't use my legs? Uh, just weight lift a lot, I guess? Uh... Then I'm going to go one of those guys with tiny little legs and a big muscly upper body. I hate this, and I think I'm ready to give up and just be fat as hell. And I even started a competition with a coworker on the Apple Fitness app where I said, uh, yeah, let's do this, and now I'm crippled, so I'm going to lose the competition within the first day of doing this. So... I don't know. My tip is, when you get to be 46 years old, just be fat and give up. No one's going to love you. You're not going to be attractive. So just give up or stop eating. I can't stop eating. I've recently realized a love for Chips Ahoy cookies that I'm just not turning back on. Let's get into Chapter 7, The Extraordinary Entanglement of Mr. Pupkin. 
Judge Pepperlay lived in a big house with hardwood floors and a wide piazza that looked over the lake from the top of Oneida Street. Every day, about half past five, he used to come home from his office in the Mariposa Courthouse. On some days, as he got near the house, he would call out to his wife, Almighty Moses, Martha, who left the sprinkler on the grass? On other days, he would call to her, from quite a little distance off. Hello, Mother. Uh, got any supper for a hungry man? And Mrs. Pepperlay never knew which it would be. On the days when he swore at the sprinkler, you could see his spectacles flash like dynamite. But on the days when he called, Hello, Mother, they were simply irradiated with kindleness. 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 All right, apparently that's a word. Some days, I say, he would cry out with a perfect whine of indignation. Suffering Caesar! Has that infernal dog torn up those geraniums again? In other days, you would hear him singing out, Hello, Rover! Well, doggy, well, old fellow. In the same way at breakfast, the judge, as he looked over the morning paper, would sometimes leap to his feet with a perfect howl of suffering and cry, Everlasting Moses! Ah, the liberals have carried East Elgin! Or else he would lean back from the breakfast table with the most good-humored laugh. He had ever heard say, Ha ha! Ah, the conservatives have carried South Norfolk. And yet he was perfectly logical. Uh, when you come to think of it, after all, what is more annoying to a sensitive, highly strung man than an infernal sprinkler playing all over the place, and what more agreeable to a good-natured, even-tempered fellow than a well-prepared supper? Or what is more likable than one's good old affectionate dog bounding down the path from sheer delight uh, at seeing you? Or more uh, ex execrable than an infernal whelp that has torn up the geraniums and is too old to keep anyway? As for politics, uh, well, it all seemed reasonable enough. When the conservatives got in anywhere, Pepperly laughed and enjoyed it, simply because it does one good to see a straight, fine, honest fight where the best man wins. When a liberal got in, ooh, it made him mad. And he said so, not, mind you, from any political bias uh, for his office forbade it, but simply because one can't bear to see the country go absolutely to the devil. I suppose, too, it was partly the effect of sitting in court all day, listening to cases. One gets what you might call the judicial temper of mind. Pepperley had it so strongly developed that I've seen him kick a hydrangea pot to pieces with his foot because the accursed thing wouldn't flower. Once, he threw a canary cage clear into the lilac bushes because the blasted bird wouldn't stop singing. It was a straight case of judicial temper, lots of judges have it, developed in the same broad, all-round ways with Judge Pepperlay. I think it must be passing sentences that does it. Anyway, Pepperlay had the aptitude for passing sentences, so highly perfected that he spent his whole time at it inside his court and out. I've heard him hand out sentences from the Sultan of Turkey to Mrs. Pankhurst and the Emperor of Germany, that made one's blood run cold. He would sit there on the piazza of a summer evening reading the paper with dynamite sparks flying from his spectacles as he sentenced the Tsar of Russia to ten years in the salt mines and made it fifteen a few more minutes afterwards. Pepperley always read the foreign news, a news of things that he couldn't alter, as a form of wild and stimulating torment. 
So you can imagine that in some ways the judge's house was a pretty difficult house to go to. I mean, you can see how awfully hard it must have been for Mr. Pumpkin. I tell you, it took some nerve to step up on that piazza and say in a perfectly natural offhanded way, Oh, uh, how do you do, Judge? Is Miss Zeta in? Uh, no, I won't say. Thanks. I think I ought to be going. I simply called. A man who can do that has got to have a pretty fair amount of savoir, is what you call it. And he's got to be mighty well shaved and have his cameo pin put in his tie at a pretty undeniable angle before he can tackle it. Yes, and even then he may need to hang around behind the lilac bushes for half an hour first and cool off. And he's apt to make pretty good time down on Ida Street on the way back. Still, that's what you call love. And if you've got it, and are well shaved and your boots well blacked, you can do things that seem almost impossible. Yes, you can do anything. Even if you do trip over the dog in getting off the piazza, don't suppose for a moment that Judge Pepperley as an unapproachable or harsh man, always and to everyone. Even Mr. Pumpkin uh, had to admit that he couldn't be so. To know that, you had only to see Zena Pepperlay and put her arm around his neck and call him Daddy. She would do that even when there were two or three young men sitting on the edge of the piazza. You know, I think the way they sit on the edge of the Mariposa, it is meant to indicate what part of a family they have come to see. Thus, when George Duff, the bank manager, came up to the Pepperlay house, he always sat in a chair on the veranda and talked to the judge. But when Pupkin or Mallory Tompkins or any other fellow like that came, he sat down in a sidelong fashion on the edge of the boards. And when they knew exactly what he was there for, if he knew the house well, he leaned his back against the veranda post and smoked a cigarette. But that took nerve. But I'm afraid that this is a digression, and of course you know all about just as well as I do. All that I was trying to say was that the, I don't suppose that the judge had ever spoken a crossword to Zena in his life. Oh, he threw her novel over the grapevine. I don't deny that, but when, why on earth would a girl read trash like the aired quest of the paladin pilgrim and the life of Sir Galahad when the house was full of good reading like the life of Sir John A. MacDonald and pioneer days in Tecumseh Township. Still, what I mean is that the judge never spoke harshly to Zena except perhaps under extreme provocation and I am quite sure that he never, never had to kneel. But then what father would want to speak angrily to such a boy as Neil Pepperlay. The judge took no credit himself for that the finest grown boy in the whole country, and so broad and big that they took him into the Mariposa horse when he was only seventeen, and clever, oh, so clever, that he didn't need a study, so clever that he used to come out at the foot of the class of mathematics in the Mariposa High School through sheer surplus of brain power. I've heard the judge explain it a dozen times why Neil was so clever that he used to be able to play billiards at the Mariposa house all evening where the other boys had to stay home and study. Such a powerful-looking fellow, too. Everyone in Mariposa remembers how Neil Pepperley smashed in the face of Peter McGinnis, the liberal organizer at the big election. Hey, you recall it. Uh, when the old MacDonald government went out, Judge Pepperley had to try him forth the next morning, his own son. They say 
There was never such a scene, even in Mariposa Court. There was, I believe, something in it on a smaller scale in Roman history, but it wasn't half as dramatic. I remember Judge Pepperley leaning forward to pass the sentence. For a judge is bound, you know, by his oath. And how grave he looked and yet so proud and happy, like a man doing his duty and sustained by it. And he said, "Ah, My boy, you are innocent. You smashed in Peter McGinnis' face, but... You did it without criminal intent. You put a face on him, uh, by Jehoshaphat, uh, that he won't lose for six months. But you did it without evil purpose or a malign design. My my boy, look up. Uh, give me your hand. Uh, you leave this court without a stain upon your name. They said it was one of the most moving scenes ever enacted in Mariposa Court. But the strangest thing, uh, that if the judge had ever known what everyone else in Mariposa knew... It would have broken his heart. If he could have seen Neil with the drunken flush on his face in the billiard room of the Mariposa house, if he had known, as everyone else did, uh, that Neil had crazed with drunk the night he struck the liberal organizer when the old McDonald government went out. If he could have known that even on the last day Neil was drunk when he rode with the Mariposa horse to the station to join the third contingent for the war. And all the street of the little town was one great war of people. But the judge never knew, and now he never will. For if you could find it in the meanness of your soul to tell him, it would serve no purpose now except to break his heart. And there would rise up to rebuke you the pictured wisdom vision of an unintended grave somewhere in the great silences of South Africa. Uh, uh, did I say above, or simply uh, to imply that the judge sometimes spoke harshly to his wife? Uh, or did you gather for a minute uh, that her lot was one to lament over or feel sorry for? If so, it just shows that you know nothing about such things, and that marriage, at least as it exists in Mariposa, is a sealed book to you. You're as ignorant as Miss Spiffkins the biology teacher at the high school, who always says how sorry she is for Mrs. Pepperley. You get that impression simply because the judge howled like a Algonquin Indian uh, when he saw the sprinkler running on the lawn. But are you sure you know the other side of it? Uh, are you quite sure when you talk like Mrs. Spiffkin does about the rights of it? that you are talking about taking things into account, you might have thought differently, perhaps, of the Pepperleys anyway, if you had been there that evening when the judge came home to his wife, with one hand pressed to his temple and the other to the cablegram that said that Neil had been killed in action in South Africa. That night, they sat together with her hand in his, just as they had sat together thirty years ago, when he was a law student in the city. Go and tell Mrs. Spiffkins that. Hydrangeas, canaries, temper, blazes. What does Mrs. Spiffkins know about it all? But in any case, if you try to tell Judge Pepperley about how, about Neil, how he wouldn't believe it, how he'd laugh at the scorn. That is Neil's picture in uniform hanging in the dining room beside the Fathers of Confederation. That military-looking man in the picture beside him is General Kitchener whom you may perhaps have heard of, for he was very highly spoken of in Neil's letters. All around the room, in fact. There's still more in the judge's library upstairs. You will see pictures of South Africa and the departure of the Canadians 
there are none of the, uh, the return, and of the mounted infantry, and of unmounted cavalry, and a lot of things that only soldiers and the fathers of soldiers know about. So you can realize that for a fellow who isn't military, and who wears nothing nearer to a uniform than a daffodil tennis blazer, the judge's house is a devil of a house to come to. I think you remember... Uh, young Mr. Pupkin, do you not? I've referred to him several times already as the junior teller in the exchange bank. But if you know Mariposa at all, you have often seen him. You have noticed him, I am sure, going for the bank mail in the morning in an office suit effect of clinging gray with a gold necktie pin shaped like a riding whip. You have seen him often enough going down to the lakefront after supper in tennis things, ah, smoking a cigarette with a paddle and a crimson canoe cushion under his arm. You have seen him entering Dean Drone's church in a top hat and a long frock coat nearly to his feet. You have seen him, perhaps, playing poker in Peter Glover's room over the hardware store and trying to look as if he didn't hold three aces. Ah, in fact giving absolutely no sign of it beyond the wild flush in his face and the fact that his hair stands on it. That kind of reticence is a thing you simply have to learn in banking. I mean, if you've got to be in a position where you know for a fact that Mariposa Packing Company's account is overdrawn by $64 and yet don't say anything about it, not even to the girls yeah, that you play tennis with, I don't say, not a casual hint as a reference, but not really... Tell them, not for instance, bring down the bank ledger to the tennis court and show them. You learn a lot of reticence and self-control that people outside of banking circles yeah, can never attain. Why, I've known Pupkin at the fireman's ball leaning against the wall in his dress suit and talk away to Jim Elliot, yeah, the druggist, without giving the faintest hint or indication that Elliot's note for $27 has been protested that very morning. Not a hint of it. I don't say he didn't mention it. In a sort of way, in a supper room, just one or two, but I mean, there was nothing in the way he lent it up against the wall to suggest it. But, however, I don't mention that is either for or against Mr. Pumpkin. That sort of thing is merely the ABC of banking, as he himself told me when explaining why it was that he hesitated to divulge the exact standing of, Miss, of the Mariposa Carriage Company. Of course, once you get past the ABC, you can learn a lot that is mighty interesting. So I think that if you know Mariposa and understand even the rudiments of banking, you are perfectly acquainted with Mr. Pumpkin. What? Uh, you remember him as being in love with Mrs. Lawson, uh, the high school teacher? Uh, in love with her? What a ridiculous idea. You mean merely because on the night when the Mariposa Bells sank with every soul on board, Pupkin put off uh, from the town into a skiff to rescue Mrs. Lawson. Oh, but you're quite wrong. That was a love. I've heard Pupkin explain it himself a dozen times. That sort of thing, paddling out to a sinking steamer at night in a crazy skiff, may indicate a sort of a, uh, attraction. They're not real love. Not what Pumpkin came to feel afterwards. Indeed, uh, when he began to think of it, it wasn't even attraction. It was merely respect. That's all it was. And anyways, that was long before, six or seven months back, and Pumpkin admitted that at the time he was a mere boy. Mr. Pumpkin, 
Hmm, I must explain, lived with Mallory Tompkins in rooms over the Exchange Bank on the very top floor, the third eh, with Mullins' own rooms below them. Extremely comfortable quarters they were, with two bedrooms and a sitting room that was all fixed up with eh, snowshoes and tennis rackets on the walls and desks, programs and canoe club badges and all else sorts of things. Mallory Tompkins was a young man with hmm, long legs and uh, check trousers who worked on the Mariposa Times-Herald. That was what gave him his literary taste. He used to read Isbin and other Dutch author Bumstone. Bumstone, isn't it? And you can judge that he was a mighty intellectual fellow. He was so intellectual that he was, as he himself admitted, a complete agnostic. He and Pumpkin used to have the most tremendous arguments about creation and evolution, and how if you study at a school of applied science, you learn that there is no hell beyond the present life. Mallory Tompkins used to prove absolutely that the miracles were only electricity, and Pumpkin used to admit that it was an awfully good argument, but claimed that he had heard it awfully well answered in a sermon, though unfortunately he had forgotten how. Tompkins used to show that the flood was contrary to geology, and Pumpkin would acknowledge that the point was an excellent one, but that he had read a book, uh, the title of which he had ought to have written down, which he explained the geology away altogether. Mallory Tompkins generally got the best of the merely logical side of the arguments, but Pupkin, who was a tremendous Christian, was much stronger in the things he had forgotten. So the discussions often lasted till far into the night. I, Mr. Pupkin, would fall asleep and dream of a splendid argument, which would have settled the whole controversy, only unfortunately he couldn't recall in the morning. Oh, of course, Pumpkin would never have thought of considering himself on an intellectual par with Mallory Tompkins. That would have been ridiculous. Mallory Tompkins had read all sorts of things and had half a mind to write a novel himself. Either that or a play. All he needed, he said, was to have a chance to get away somewhere by himself and think. Every time he went away to the city, Pumpkin expected that he might return with the novel all finished, but... Though he often came back with his eyes red from thinking, (laughs) the novel was yet remained incomplete. Meantime, Mallory Tompkins, as I say, was a mighty intellectual fellow. You could see that from the books on the bamboo bookshelves in the living room. There was, uh, for instance, the Encyclopedia Metropolita, Metropolita, Polinita, all right, in 40 volumes uh, that he thought on an installment plan, or they bought an installment plan for $2 a month. Then, when they took that away, there was the history of civilization in 50 volumes at 50 cents a week for 50 years. Tompkins had read it in halfway through the Stone Age before they took it from him. After that, there was the Lives of the Painters, uh, one volume at a time, a splendid thing in which you could read all about Arins and Arkathal and Axe and men of that class. After all, There was nothing like educating oneself. Mallory Tompkins knew about the opening period of all sorts of things. And in regard to people whose names began with A, you couldn't stick them. I don't mean that he and Mr. Pupkin lived a mere routine of studious evenings. That would be untrue. Often, uh, their time was spent in much less commendable ways than that. There were the poker parties uh, in the sitting room. Yeah, that didn't break up till nearly midnight. Card playing, after all, is a slow business, unless you put money on it. And besides, if you are in a bank and are handling money all day, gambling has a uh, fascination. 
I've seen Pumpkin and Mallory Tompkins and Joe Milligan, uh, the dentist, and Mitchell, the ticket agent, and the other boys sitting around the table with matches, uh, enough piled up in front of them to stock a factory. Ten matches counted for one chip, and ten chips uh, made a cent. So if you see they weren't merely playing for the fun of the thing, of course, it's a hollow pleasure, you realize that when you wake up at night parched with thirst, ten thousand matches to the bad. But banking is a wild life, uh, and everyone knows it. Sometimes, Pumpkin would swear off and keep away from the cursed thing for weeks, and then perhaps he'd see by sheer accident a pile of matches on the table or, or a match lying on the floor, and it would start the craze in him. I am using his own words, a craze. That's what he called it when he told Miss Lawson all about it, and he promised to, and she promised to cure him of it. She would have too, only, as I say, Pumpkin found that what he had mistaken for attraction was only respect. There's no use worrying a woman uh, that you respect about your crazes. It was from Mallory Tompkins that Pupkin learned all about the Mariposa people, because Pupkin came from a way off, uh, somewhere down the Maritime provinces, and didn't know a soul. Mallory Tompkins used to tell him about Judge Pepperley, and what a wonderfully clever man he was, and how he would have even been the Supreme Court uh, for a certain if the conservative government had stayed another 15 or 20 years instead of coming to a premature end. He used to talk so much about the Pepperleys that Pumpkin was sick of the very name. But just as soon as he had seen Zena Pepperley, he couldn't hear enough of them. He would have talked with Tompkins for hours about the judge's dog, Rover. And as for Zena, he would have brought her name over his lips. He would have talked of her forever. He first saw her, by one of the strangest coincidences in the world, on the main street of Mariposa. Uh, if he hadn't happened to be going up the street and she were to be coming down it, the thing wouldn't have happened. Afterwards, they both admitted that it was one of the most peculiar coincidences they ever heard of. Pumpkin owned that he had had the strangest feeling that morning, that as if something were going to happen, a feeling not at all to be classed with one of the which you spoke of Mrs. Lawson, and which was, at the most, a mere anticipation of respect. But, as I say, Pupkin met Zena Pepperley on the 26th of June at 25 minutes to 11, and at once the whole world changed. Ah, the past was all blotted out, even in the new 40-volume edition of the uh, installment record of humanity that Mallory Tompkins had just received. Pupkin wouldn't have bothered with it. She, uh, that word henceforth meant Zena, had just come back from her boarding school and of all times of the year coming back from a boarding school and for wearing a white shirt waist and a crimson tie and for carrying a tennis racket on the stricken street of a town. Commend me to the month of June in Mariposa. And for Pupkin, straight away the whole town was irradiated with sunshine. And there was such a singing of birds, and such a dancing of the rippled waters of the lake, such a kindliness in the faces of all the people, that only those who had lived in Mariposa had been young there can know at all what he felt. The simple fact is that the, just the moment he saw Zena Pepperley, Mr. Pumpkin was clean, ah, plumb, straight, flat, absolutely in love with her. Which fact is so important that it would be folly not to close the chapter and think about it.
Well, what did we learn here today? We learned that love is eh, disingenuous and stupid. Uh, You can meet someone on the street in the most mundane of situations and convince yourself that fate intervened uh, to make it happen. Uh, Love is fussy. The other woman that was quote-unquote only respected uh, thinks she just wanted to be respected. No, she wanted to be in love. Uh, But that changed because love is fickle and fussy like a prize horse. Love is also for the young. Uh, The young who aren't fat and middle-aged with a puffy face and gray hair around the ears. Uh, Love is for people that are good-looking and pleasant to look at, not people that are just the weight of the water in their faces just sloughing off the bones. So keep that in mind as we learn today's lesson, which is uh, people who love are dumb, and you should point at them and laugh at them. Thanks for listening, and I will see you uh, next time.